It was a scene that Jerusalem had never seen before. David, the king of all Israel, the best king, the man after God's own heart, was fleeing for his life. David had always entered Jerusalem. He always entered Jerusalem victorious. He had conquered the city when it was in foreign hands. He had made the conquered city into his own capital. He had made it into his own place and his own home. He had elevated it by power and prestige to be the most important city in all of the world, the most important capital of any country. He had filled it with treasures, with prestige, and with power, both the might of armies and money and the power of the Lord himself. It was his city. It was the city of David. It was the centerpiece of his kingdom. But today, this day, his officials and advisors watched him flee. Abandon his home, leave his throne, exit the city in disgrace. David had been defeated. The nation had never witnessed a defeated David. If there was one word to describe David, it was victorious. David always won always succeeded. From his childhood, when he was shepherding the sheep, he killed the lion and the bear, defended the sheep, and protected them. When he was an awkward teenager, he went out to the battlefield not to fight, but to minister to his brothers and found himself in a place where he railed against the giant Goliath who was railing against the true God. And with an awkwardness, he tore off the armor that Saul gave him and went out to face a giant in his first ever battle with another human being with nothing but a slingshot and some stones. And David was... <laughs> victorious. He became a young general, the youngest in Saul's army, and every time he went out, he always succeeded. He always defeated. He always had the right tactics. He always had the right moves, and he would come back to Saul's palace, and he would dance before the Lord in victory. David, you see, had never been defeated. He conquered all of his enemies, the nations in the neighborhood around Israel, the promised land. He expanded the borders and influence of Israel. He received tribute from powerful men and great rulers and other nations and other kingdoms because they all recognized this one truth, this one reality, and that was the Lord was with David. And because the Lord was with David... He always won, except for today. On this day, David lost. David was defeated. All the Jewish officials and royal court advisors, 
all that are fleeing with him, all that they can see is that an undefeated king is suffering his first and most devastating loss ever. The sting David feels is real because the usurper of his throne is no stranger or spy. It is no despot or warrior. It is no foreigner. It is his own flesh and blood. More than that, it's not just his son. It's his favorite son. It's Absalom, the crown prince, the next in line for the throne. It's him whom he trusted, who is now orchestrating his overthrow. David's pain is great. The betrayal of his son cuts deep. What father, what human being would want to be part of a process where your own son, whom you have birthed and raised and lived and showered affection upon and showered opportunities upon, what father would want to be in a situation where that son betrays you and tries to destroy you? David doesn't hide it in his face. How could you? And all the officials and advisors look at his face as they are fleeing, and they can see the wound in his heart showing in his eyes. But what the officials that day could not see and do not know is that David has already begun to try and deal with the defeat in his own mind and heart, and he is turning his anguish into an anthem. Ever the poet... He is turning his pain into a lyric. The poet and David cannot help himself. The musician has this refrain that is stuck in his mind like a, like a song that you have heard and just can't get out of your head. As he's fleeing, as the world is collapsing around him, this refrain keeps coming back to him. Lord, how many are my foes? What seems at first glance to be a refrain of hopelessness is not quite that to David, not in his mind, because this isn't the first time he has been outnumbered by his enemies. He's known that a lot, and his adversaries have oftentimes been too numerous to count, and yet he has always turned out victorious. This is not the first time a family member has turned on him, threatened him, wounded him. His first wife, Michael, Michael, his first wife has gone back and forth between supporting him and then criticizing him, abandoning him. His father-in-law, King Saul, spent decades trying to kill and destroy him. This is not his first rodeo. It's not his first difficulty. It's not the first time he's been outnumbered. But it's tougher to overcome these kinds of situations when it's your own flesh and blood. You may be able to divorce a wife and to ignore a father-in-law, but when it's your son, when it's the apple of your eye, when your son should be your ally and not your foe, it cuts deeper. It's harder to overcome. 
David can't imagine how it could have ever come to this, that his own son would betray him. But what David cannot imagine, the officials and the advisors can. For they have seen this coming. David is a great king, but the truth is he's a terrible father. And that has not been hidden from anyone. What David cannot imagine, his officials have seen coming. When he trusted Absalom, they did not. When he thought that Absalom had been recreated and renewed and brought back, David fools himself into believing that, but the officials don't trust him, and they see it coming. It's an open secret in the palace that David slept with Bathsheba before she was widowed. Even people in the palace can count backwards. <laughs> they know that he slept with her before she was widowed. The baby now long gone is proof of that. The scandalous affair was muted only by the incredible popularity and power of David. When you have such power and prestige, sometimes you can overcome even the biggest of scandals, and David did. But now, it was no longer the case. His failure as a father was coming back, and it was biting him in the heart. Furthermore, his children had seen that moral failure. It wasn't that Absalom was reacting in his immoral behavior, his illicit behavior. It wasn't like he was doing that out of a vacuum. He had done it because he had seen what his father had done and the fact that his father was never held accountable for raping Bathsheba. On top of that, it is the household experience that all of the children apparently learned, or at least some of them learned, that they were privileged, that they were superior, that they were greater than, that they could get away with whatever they darn well pleased. And so you have Amnon, David's son, who in a Bathsheba-like experience has lust, not for a woman on a on a rooftop across the way, but for his own half-sister as she sachets around the palace. And he orchestrates the rape, and he deflowers his own half-sister, and then kicks her away, disgusted by her after he's gotten what he wants. Tamar in her life is destroyed. What happens to Amnon? Nothing. David is angry and does nothing. Absalom sees it all and sees his father's lack of response, bides his time, and ends up destroying Amnon, having him killed in front of him for the rape of his sister. What should have happened to Absalom? What punishment should he get, be given? It should be harsh. It should be swift. It should be strong. No, no, no. Instead, 
He's banished from Jerusalem for a couple of years. Not that he lives in squalor or in a prison or in that kind of isolation, but he goes to another town and he's supported by the king and he lives the life he has lived. There is no punishment even for murder in the palace. David is a terrible father. You see, what the crowd that day knows, what the officials understand that David cannot envision is that as that refrain goes around in his head, Lord, many are my foes. The reality is that the crowd understands that the foes that surround David and that have always surrounded David have not been the despots and the satraps and the princes and the kings and the soldiers and the armies. The foes that have surrounded David have been that of his own family, his own children. He has way too many wives. He has way too much of a sexual appetite. He is an absent father with absent parenting skills. He is a man of moral ambiguity who claims to have moral superiority. The larger question that is going on that day in the minds of the advisors and of the officials that are following David out of Jerusalem and retreating is not David's questionable character or his poor parenting practices. No, no, the thing that is on everybody's mind, the thing that in reality is center on David's mind is, will God be with me? Will God save me? Or is this the moment when God will abandon David to exile? All are questioning whether this is the end of David. Everybody is wondering whether the Lord will withdraw his hand. Everybody that is, <laughs> except David. Or as the poem forms in his head, as the song begins to take shape and voice and begins to have notes and refrain, David already has begun to form the answer. God is not absent. God is his shield. God is an impenetrable shield. And that even though this all seems lost, even though there seems like there is no hope in the situation, God has his arms around David yet. Like Moses with his back to the Red Sea facing the advancing Egyptian hoofbeats. Like Joshua facing the fortified walls of Jericho that can never come down by human hands. Like Samuel facing the Philistines at Mizpah with nothing but a burnt offering, a makeshift altar, and an Ebenezer in one hand. David flees Jerusalem, but his fervent, powerful cry is not only heard by God, but God answers from his holy mountain, the one from which he is fleeing itself. With such power does God answer David's prayer that there is thunder on the mountain. And David feels the moving of God like thunder in his soul. And it is at that moment that the officials look over 
and look back at David's face, and they perceive that his countenance has changed. For no longer is he depressed, no longer is he confused, no longer is he wondering just about, oh Lord, how many foes surround me. Now they see that look that is all too familiar to them in David's face. The look that he always has when crisis abounds in those difficult moments that's now returned on David's face. It's what made David a great leader. It's what made David a great king. It's what made David a great warrior. Because David had this one character that separate characteristic that separated him from everybody else. David had no fear. And now the fear was gone from his face. Fear had been replaced by a firm relying confidence in God himself. For God would not abandon him. God who had saved him, the God who had called him, the God who had placed him on the throne, the God who led him, the God who empowered him would once again be the God who delivered him out of the hands of his enemies. David never feared men. He did not fear armies. He did not fear kings. He did not fear the sword. He did not fear death. He did not fear hundreds. He did not fear thousands. He did not fear tens of thousands. Why? Why have no fear in that kind of situation? Because he was eternally assured that deliverance, that rescue, that help comes from a not a geographical place, not a title, not a crown, not a throne, not wealth, not power, not might, but deliverance comes from God himself. If you believe this grand truth that God delivers you, you live in hopeful expectancy. And suddenly, David comes alive. He begins barking orders where he has been depressed and silent, grieving and pained. Now suddenly he says, you stay, you come, you do this, you come here, you gather together, you do this while we go here. He makes plans on the move, as only a king can truly do. Once again, the deposed and defeated king is back in charge, because God will deliver him. By the time the story reaches its full conclusion, David's faith in God is rewarded. For Absalom is destroyed because he gets outside of the will of God and tries to usurp power himself. And David is returned because he accepts that the throne is not his, but it is God's to do what he wants, and that he will accept the will of the Lord, whatever it may be. And you see, it's not the king's power that prevails, it's God's deliverance that prevails. 
This is not a story about David overcoming his foes. This is a story about God overcoming evil. This is not about your power. It's not about David's power. It's not about the power of the army, the might of Israel, the strength of David's political abilities, the intellect that he has in those situations that require wisdom. It's not about David's brilliance. It's not even about his character, flawed as it may be, but it is about the transformative presence of God that any victory that is won, any battle that is secured, any trouble that is overcome is by the hand of God. And so as the officials follow King David as he flees Jerusalem that day, their retreat is slowly but surely turned into resolve. Their hope is transformed into a profound belief, a firm faith, a deepening assurance that we are the Lord's no matter what. They will look back at this moment when they return to Jerusalem in time, when they enter back into the capital city victorious, Once again, following David, this time not running and fleeing as defeated and deposed king, but returning as conquering hero, returning as God's king over Israel. They will look at that moment when David returns. They will remember and think back to the moment, this moment, when David was fleeing Jerusalem. And it was then that the nation of Israel and the advisors and the officials first truly understood that God is real and that he is just as real in the failure, just as real in the tough moments, just as real in the valley of death, that there is light that turns the valley of death into the valley of the shadow of death. That God is just as real in those moments of pain and anguish and seeming failure and loss as he is in times of joy and victory and celebration. Now, David was not perfect that day. David's life was not perfect. But then who among us is? But God, God is a good, good father. And he is faithful. And he is 